Do you recall the first time you met John Kennedy? Uh, yes, I do. Within months of President Kennedy's death in Dallas, his family announced plans for a different kind of memorial to be constructed not from marble, but from the still fresh recollections of people who had known Jack Kennedy personally. I told him, I said, Mr. Kennedy, he says, look, my name is Jack. You call me Jack. He had a tremendous capacity. You involve, you interest you. You wanted to tell him everything. I don't think he even knew where the district was. He had to have a guide to bring him around. For 50 years, these tape-recorded stories have gone almost entirely unheard until now. He used to look at me and he'd say, uh, you know, Barry, every time I vote, I can watch you wince. I'm Robert McNeil. Stay with us for We Knew JFK, unheard stories from the Kennedy archives. From PRX. First, this news. For anyone old enough to remember that day in Dallas, Tom Wicker's stark account, dictated to the New York Times, will bring back the horror and shock of one of the nation's darkest hours. I'm Robert McNeil. For the last few months of John Kennedy's life, I covered him as a White House correspondent for NBC News. I was in the Dallas motorcade when he was shot. In fact, I ran into the Texas Book Depository looking for a phone, apparently as Lee Harvey Oswald was leaving. But this program from the Public Radio Exchange is not about the death of JFK. Rather, it's about the life. The program is We Knew JFK, unheard stories from the Kennedy archives. Testing one, two, three. I told him, I said, Mr. Kennedy, he says, look, my name is Jack. John F. Kennedy Jack. Library, Oral History There's Project. There's one curious anecdote I think is quite interesting. The date is July 21st, 1965. God, I hope they don't play this for a long, long Background time. Background noise is provided by Parrots. April the 7th, 1964. Do you recall the first time you met John Kennedy? Uh, yes, I do. I was asked to know. I still remember. The hour is constructed from an extraordinary collection of conversations recorded long ago with people who knew Jack Kennedy personally. For half a century, these recordings have lain unheard in the Kennedy Library and Museum in Boston. Historians have quoted from the transcripts, but now for the first time, we can hear these intimate stories in the voices of those who told them. Most of the voices are male. There were, as we now know, many women in Kennedy's life, but only a handful played serious roles or had their stories recorded. We begin with Jack Kennedy's first foray into public life, a young man with a distinguished war record, but largely unknown. The night I met him, we were sitting in a nightclub called the Patio down in Florida. Charles Bartlett was a journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winner, who would become an intimate friend of the president. It was in the winter of 1946. He just had committed himself to run for Congress, and uh, he was about to uh, go up to Boston and begin the campaign. And uh, some of the uh, Palm Beach figures would come up and pat him on the back. Jack, I'm so glad you're running. I remember his saying, only a year or so, they'll be saying that I'm the worst son of a bitch that ever lived. The first time I met Jack Kennedy, he was an anemic-looking kid, just back from the service, thin as a rail, and we couldn't conceive of him as the candidate that he was going to be. Thomas Tip O'Neill, then a state legislator, was not the only one JFK failed to bowl over. Jack Kennedy looked to me like a boy just out of school, knew nothing whatsoever about politics and nothing whatsoever about the district that he was trying to represent. Daniel O'Brien ran a funeral parlor in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and was influential in local democratic politics. Dan, when he came into your office, did he explain to you why he was running? Made no explanation at all, just that he was a candidate from a phony address on Bowdoin Street. I don't think he even knew where the district was. He had to have a guide to bring him around. By the time Jack Kennedy got his hat in the ring, most of the party regulars in the 11th Congressional District were already committed 
to Mike Neville, former mayor of Cambridge and a popular figure in the area. Of course, uh, there was a lot of bitterness. Joseph de Guglielmo, a.k.a. Joe de Goog, was the first local figure of any prominence to back the young insurgent. His reputation at that time was that the only thing he had to recommend him was that he had ambition and he was a millionaire's son. Anybody has a shot at it. Daniel O'Brien. I can go and run down an East Squeedunk. I don't have to be a native and I don't have to be a resident if I've got the wherewithal to finance a decent fight. For Jack Kennedy, son of one of the richest men in America, wherewithal was never an issue. But he had another asset as well. As Tip O'Neill remembered, he had grit. He must have called my house ten times asking me if I'd support him. And I said, Jack, I'm sorry. I served in the legislature with Mike Neville for eight years. I feel as though I have an obligation to him. I just can't be with him. Can I come out to the house to see you? Jack, please. You'll embarrass me. You'll embarrass yourself. I've given the fellow my word. Shot out by the party regulars, the budding Kennedy campaign built its own grassroots operation, mostly around people who'd never been politically active before. He was the best campaigner I'd ever seen. John Droney, a young lawyer, also just back from the war, was among the early recruits. If he heard that Mike Neville was in Charlestown and it was one in the morning, he'd immediately go to Charlestown. He'd walk into the police and firemen and he knew they were all against him, or most of them. And yet he'd walk in and when he left, he'd have some of them. There's no question about that. And this is the way it was everywhere. Joe DeGoog noticed another voting block that found Jack Kennedy appealing and would all his life. If Jack had any single appeal, it was to the women. His big fault when he started was his lack of oratorical polish. He would fumble for words. But as far as women were concerned, they didn't see that. The first time he ever made a speech in Cambridge was at the Kiwanis Club. And I noticed that all the waitresses waited to get his autograph. And I had never seen that before. John Droney. Then they waited after work to see him and talk with him. And I think that that was the tip-off. I didn't realize that Kennedy was catching on the way he was catching on. But back when I was in the legislature, I used to ring every doorbell in my own precinct. So I can remember going into Nellie Murphy. Nellie, Tom O'Neill, and Kennedy for re-election just thought I'd say hello. How are you? You know, don't forget election day. I'd appreciate your vote. Tom, are you running against Jack Kennedy? No, I'm running for the state legislature. He's running for Congress in Washington. Oh, thanks be to God. I thought he was running against you. Isn't he wonderful? Three houses down the door, Nora Sweeney. Hi, Nora, how are you? Tom O'Neill, how's everything? Fine, how's Pat? Fine. Tom, this young Kennedy boy running against you? No, he's running for Congress, and I'm running for the state legislature. Oh, thanks be to God. Well, I must have got the 10 places along the line, and I said to myself, thanks be to God, I'm not running against Jack Kennedy. <laughs> that afternoon, I knew that Mike Neville was dead. Capitol Hill in Washington is again the nation's focal point as the 80th Congress convenes during one of the most crucial periods in the nation's history. Crucial it may have been, but apparently not so much for Jack Kennedy. He was an extraordinarily indifferent young congressman. Max Friedman was a Canadian journalist who covered Washington politics for the British newspaper, then the Manchester Guardian. He didn't work very hard at the job and would have uh, been an unbelievable figure if he were cast in the role of a young man of destiny. He took a sort of an observer's view of the house, really. That's Charles Bartlett again, who by this time was both covering Jack Kennedy and becoming a close friend. He never felt that he was really enjoying himself. He went off every weekend. He didn't feel that he, uh, he was really seized by it. I remember he told me the one thing he liked about George Smathers, because he really didn't give a damn. I think that all these sort of hustling freshmen, it just wasn't his temperament. After three undistinguished terms in the house, Kennedy set his sights on the Senate, but faced a serious obstacle. The incumbent, Henry Cabot Lodge, appeared to have the seat locked up. Undaunted, Kennedy again bypassed the party machine and built his own operation, this time statewide. I remember reading about the door-to-door, house-to-house, town-to-town campaign that the whole family put on. Hubert Humphrey, then a senator from Minnesota, watched it all with interest. I thought it was tremendous. It was the kind of campaign in depth that got national attention. And it was quite obvious that there was something new developing in terms of the Kennedy technique in politics. The 83rd Congress convened. Veep Barclay swears in a quartet of new senators. Kennedy of Massachusetts, Jackson. Well, I liked him right from the start. 
Barry Goldwater, Republican senator from Arizona, served with Kennedy on the Senate Labor Committee. He was an easy fellow to meet, had no reserve at all about him, a great sense of humor, and it stuck out in front of him so far you couldn't miss it. I remember he used to look at me and he'd say, uh, you know, Barry, every time I vote, I can watch you wince. Senator Goldwater recognized another Kennedy asset. He was a man who really didn't have to do homework as we think of it, as I have to do, for example. He could have an advisor with him on the floor or in committee, know absolutely nothing about the subject, listen to this advisor for just a few minutes and uh, get up and make a good case for himself. And then as he went on, he retained all of these things. He had a, a memory like a blotter. If Kennedy found the Senate more congenial, he remained at least in the early days what he had been in the House, something of an outsider. I once asked him what was the real ticket of admission to the so-called Senate Club. Washington journalist and pundit Joseph Alsop. He gave that wry grin of his and he said that he'd often thought about the problem and he finally concluded that the ticket of admission was being willing to make deals that you ought to be ashamed of without the smallest sign of shame. <laughs> Soon, though, friends like Charles Bartlett began to notice a difference. It was a rather interesting change. After he got into the Senate, then he seemed to me to be much more totally involved. The, the attitude of a uh, slightly passive viewer of the scene had completely gone. He became a much more engaged figure. I think he was humbled. Many people, when they go from the House to the Senate, as you know, react with an enormously swelled head. But Jack Kennedy, there was none of that. Of course, he never changed when he moved into the White House, really, in, in, in that respect. But he um, became a much more serious fellow. A more serious fellow, but in the early Senate years, still a very minor player, Max Friedman. I don't think that a 1955 Senate press gallery would have included his name and the first 25 important members of the Senate, nor would he have questioned that poll. But then something happened. South Carolina cast its 20 votes for Senator Kennedy. In 1956, Jack Kennedy found himself quite unexpectedly in serious contention for the vice presidential nomination. How close can you get? It's six. 68 now for In the end, he lost, but not before the country got a look at him and liked what it saw. I hope that this convention will make Estes Kefauver's nomination unanimous. Thank you. Within hours of being defeated, he was flooded, flooded with invitations from all parts of the country, including the South, to come and speak. This meant a great deal to him. The fact that in Washington he was just one of the crowd, at a national convention he was an applauded leader, and he suddenly realized for the first time that he was a national figure. I remember this though yesterday. Joseph Alsop. It was the time when he was on all the magazine covers, you know, he and Jackie were. And I said some such things. Well, I predict that the next time round be your party's vice presidential nominee. And uh, he turned to me with a grin and he said, well, Joe, we don't want to talk too much about VP until we're quite sure that we can't get just P. By that time, he was no longer interested in the vice presidency. Nobody works this hard to be the second man on the national ticket. I remember asking him why he thought he was worthy of being president. He laughed and he said, Whenever you look at the presidency, you think of Washington and Thomas Jefferson. When you ask whether I'm as qualified as Johnson or Symington or Adlai Stevenson, my answer is an unhesitating yes. I can remember that December, and they had a Kennedy ball, sort of a charity thing up in New York. Charles Bartlett. He had an old friend, Nancy Coleman, and uh, she sort of tickled him. She said, now, Jack, him. she said, you don't want to be president. And uh, he looked uh, at a rather cold and said, Nancy, I not only want to be, but I am going to be. And uh, he meant it. The Kennedy resolve was for real, but the obstacles in his path, age and religion for starters, were daunting. Once again, as in his first campaigns for the House and Senate, Jack Kennedy appeared more confident about his chances than reality seemed to warrant. And this time, the game was for the biggest prize of all. When we return, I remember flying with him in the middle of that thing when uh, I still had some notes, his voice was gone and he could only write those notes. And, uh, I remember when I, I'd give my right testicle to win this one. 
From the Public Radio Exchange, this is We Knew JFK, unheard stories from the Kennedy Archives, online at weknewjfk.org. I'm Robert McNeil. From PRX, this is We Knew JFK, unheard stories from the Kennedy Archives. I'm Robert McNeil. Senator Kennedy, we sincerely hope that tonight you will break your silence and give us one of the top stories of the year, that you are going to be a candidate for the presidency or that you are not. The Honorable John F. Kennedy. By the beginning of 1960, Kennedy had risen from the obscure back row of the Senate to the front ranks of presidential hopefuls, and the eyes of the nation were upon him. Appreciate the introduction, and I'm delighted to respond to the question I will not, under any conditions, seek the office of president of the Radio-Television News Director Association. <laughs> the enthusiastic response Senator Kennedy got from his audience of supposedly hard-boiled news directors was typical. By that time, he developed a knack for charming, some would say mesmerizing, the journalists who covered him. Coming late to his White House press corps, as I did in 1963, I had the distinct feeling of being snowed about Kennedy by the breeze of favorable publicity that always seemed to blow about his name. It was as though Kennedy created his own climate, his own high-pressure area, whose influence prevailed over everything else. He had his critics, some of them journalists, but it was difficult to be objective about him. The result was often frustrating for the opposition. The thing that I always used to be amazed at was the unbelievably good publicity. It was just fantastic. Hubert Humphrey, then a senator from Minnesota, was Kennedy's fiercest competitor for the Democratic nomination. Anything he would say, he would always get good copy. Always good copy. I remember I used to say to you, how in the world does a man do this? I mean, it was never a bad line, never... In other words, I would be interpreted as being brash or, or uh, talkative or this or that, and he was always interpreted as being intelligent and delightful. <laughs> and you're, uh, you could go to any grocery store, you pick up any woman's magazine, there'd be a wonderful article good pictures, nice things, always, everything. Yeah. To this day, it astounds me. When I first met him, I thought he was one of the smartest, quickest, funniest human beings I'd ever met. Laura Knabel, a writer for Look Magazine, was among the journalists who fell under the Kennedy spell. I always thought he was absolutely best in private. He had a tremendous capacity to involve you, interest you. You wanted to tell him everything. Knabel noted one Kennedy technique rare among politicians, then and now. Almost every journalist I know who has had any, you know, considerable contact with Kennedy had the same experience, that he would tell them the most fantastic things, just tremendously candid, honest, across-the-board things, which would shake him up. But the thing that was always miraculous to me is that nobody ever seemed to, to break the trust or print it. Just by his being so frank, you felt honor bound not to use it. If Kennedy was disarmingly candid about political matters, he was considerably less so about his private life. Personal stuff was distasteful to him. I mean, the, the whole personality business, or digging into his private life or his private affairs. I mean, he, he knew it had to be done and there was a value in it, but he kind of, oh, you know, let's get the hell, you know, let's, let, let's get it over with attitude. That was always the way. 50 years on, that reticence makes sense. We now know Kennedy had secrets potent enough to have sunk his career. His health problems, for example, Addison's disease, and chronic near-crippling back pain were known to many journalists, but rarely if ever reported on. And then there was the womanizing. Margaret Coit, a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, describes an evening she spent with a young senator in the early 50s when he was still a bachelor. We had been talking about books and ideas, and then he'd seen me as one kind of person. He'd seen me as a mind, and now he saw me just as something female, and he couldn't fit the two together. And it was as if he were two parts. He was like a 14-year-old high school football player on the make, and he was like an elder statesman of 60 in his intellectual processes. The two together. And it was the cold, machine-like quality that scared me so. I had the feeling that he viewed uh, women, especially pretty women, as objects. Marietta Tree, a prominent socialite and democratic activist, later served as a Kennedy appointee at the United Nations. I think he enjoyed them uh, and was extremely interested in them. Uh, but I felt all along that he 
didn't view himself as a friend or companion of women. And of course, there have been many stories about his, uh, about his being suddenly struck uh, by a woman's charms and wanting to leave a party where he met somebody who was beautiful uh, right away and, and go off and see her more. He was very direct. Direct indeed. It would be many years long after the president's death before the compulsive and some felt reckless womanizing would become known to the general public. At the time, journalists either didn't know or chose to look the other way. The secrets remained secret. Senator John Kennedy of Massachusetts, Democrat, throws his hat in the presidential ring. I am today announcing my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. The presidency is the Whatever Kennedy's health problems, his iron will and drive prevailed. Through a grueling primary season, he displayed extraordinary stamina and focus. Journalist Charles Bartlett was one of several close friends who traveled with the candidate. In West Virginia, I remember flying with him in the middle of that thing when the polls were running so much against him. And, uh, I still had some notes. His voice was gone, and he could only write those notes. And uh, I remember when I, I'd give my right testicle to win this one. And, uh, I think that was a campaign that took it all. I mean, that, that took all the qualities that he had and all the fight and everything else. It was a very dramatic thing. The West Virginia primary was dramatic for another reason. It was seen as a test of a big unanswered question. Was the country ready to put a Catholic in the White House? Senator Kennedy, I am for you, but what can I say when people say they will not vote for you because of your religion? I must say, I take a rather optimistic view, even though I know that some people are very concerned about the matter. In fact, there was reason for concern. Anti-Catholic sentiment was strong in many parts of the country. Al Smith, the only other Catholic who'd ever seriously contended for the presidency, had lost in a landslide in 1928. Three decades later, John Kennedy believed he could succeed where Al Smith had failed. Al Smith thought that the way to fight this issue was to grip prejudice by the throat and strangle it. Max Friedman. Kennedy thought the way to fight it was to make it ashamed of itself to pay the American people the tribute, thinking that 95% of them don't even know what the word bigotry means, and that the other 5% will be open to argument and reason. I can see people not wanting to vote for me, not wanting to vote for the Democratic Party, but to make their decision based on this fact and say it's all right for me to serve in the Senate, it's all right to serve in the House, it's all right for me to serve in the Navy, it's all right for my brother to serve in the Navy, and to lose his life, but you can't be president because we don't trust you to uphold the Constitution, which I swear to uphold as a senator, as a congressman, and as a naval officer, I just can't believe that people are going to make that kind of a judgment. In the end, Kennedy carried West Virginia and went on to lock up the nomination. It took a long and grinding primary season to do so, but Kennedy proved both fiercely determined and acutely strategic. Once he set out to do anything, there was no one I've ever seen who did it more completely with a greater carry-through and with more guts. Joseph Alsop. You'd watch him calculating the odds, whether to go into Wisconsin, how to handle West Virginia, all of those bridges that had to be crossed one by one. And uh, he would grump and grouse a bit. Uh, uh, stage one, stage two would be long mulling over the odds, favoring this or that approach to the bridge, if you see what I mean. And then He'd make a decision, and then after that, the whole previous argument would be forgotten, and he'd go on from there, uh, as though there'd never been an argument about whether to do it at all, and then about how to do it. Kennedy would go all out from 7 o'clock in the morning until midnight, and then at midnight, everything would explode. We'd go through a regular act. Where in the hell's my board? A sleeping board for his back. And he would storm and curse and rage and his gift for picturesque profanity was as abundant as it was versatile. This was his way of opening the safety valve. The next morning at seven o'clock, he would be ready for battle again, and there wouldn't be one false step, one false word, no matter what the stress or the provocation until midnight. And the same thing repeated every day. To me, one of the remarkable things through this whole period 
is not the fact that uh, Jack Kennedy went from the Congress to the White House in the in those years, but it was his tremendous development of a human being. I mean, the the the, the way that his being responded to the challenge. And when when he had to uh, to become a good speaker, he became it because he wanted this thing. And he went after it. For a discussion by the two major candidates for the presidency, the Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon. The first time I ever met Jack Kennedy, it was two weeks before the first Nixon Kennedy debate. Don Hewitt, later of 60 Minutes fame, produced that debate, the first ever on television. Kennedy was curious, you know, where do I stand, do I stand, do I sit, how much time do I have to answer, can he interrupt, can I interrupt, he wanted to know everything. Nixon kissed it off as just another campaign appearance. Kennedy knew how important this television appearance would be. He looked like a matinee idol, well-tailored well-tanned, in command of himself, command of the language. It was awesome. I remember I was flying to Pasadena to speak that night, and on the way over I heard the radio show, and I would have given Nixon the debate. Again, Barry Goldwater. At the dinner, it was televised and shown up on a big screen, and I said, oh, my God. And when I got home that night, my sister was at the house, and she said, uh, she says, you know, that Kennedy's not so young. <laughs> and, of course, this blew out of water, the uh, idea we were saying, don't send a boy to do a man's job. He looked smart. He looked eager. I think that was the campaign, you might say, right there. And Dick could never get it back. And from then on in, Jack had it. Jack, Jack is on the right track because he's got high hopes. He's got high hopes. To friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. And so began the era that would soon and forever be known as Camelot. From London, where I was based at the time, you could feel awareness of the charisma the Kennedys brought to Washington rippling out around the world, affecting the press and attitudes to America in many countries, and instilling the idea that this dazzling young couple would usher in a new age. First time I saw him in the White House was on a Monday night after the inauguration. Charles Bartlett. Martha and I went over there for dinner. And I remember him that night, I think, happily in, in, in a mood that I don't think I'll ever forget because it wasn't just happy because here I am, Jack Kennedy sitting in the White House. It was sort of, well, here I am and I can do all these things and I can really, and he was just burning with the things that he could do. And I remember that he showed me Lincoln's bedroom. I said, did you have any strange dreams the first night? And he said, no. I just jumped in and hung on. <laughs> the contrast between the reign of Jack and Jackie and the preceding Eisenhower era was striking, and nowhere more so than in the arts. Musicians, actors, artists accustomed to celebrity everywhere but Washington suddenly found themselves knights of the new roundtable. Leonard Bernstein remembered one evening in particular when cellist Pablo Casals performed for a glittering crowd. I couldn't help comparing it with the last time I had been at the White House, which had been in the reign of Eisenhower. In the case of the Eisenhower evening, well, for one thing, you couldn't smoke. There were no drinks served before dinner either. Everything was different. Now, compare with that a dinner at the White House at which you were served very good drinks first. There were ashtrays everywhere, just inviting you to poison yourself with cigarettes. And the moment comes and these two ravishing people appear in the doorway. You are then brought into dinner, and dinner turns out not to be at a horseshoe table, but at many little tables seating about 10 people apiece, with fires roaring in all the fireplaces, so that it's all like having dinner with friends. The food is marvelous, the wines are delicious. People are laughing, laughing out loud telling stories and jokes, enjoying themselves, glad to be there. I've never seen so many happy artists in my life. It was like a different world. Princess Grace of Monaco was another who experienced the Camelot magic. He turned to me sadly and asked, is that a Givenchy you're wearing? And I said, well, how clever of you, Mr. President, however did you know? Oh, he replied, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at it now that the press is paying more attention to Jackie's clothes than to my speeches. 
For the newly elected president, and indeed for the dazzled world, John Kennedy's first months in office were a heady and hopeful time. Whatever personal adversity he'd endured, the man had led something of a charmed life. In just 14 years, undefeated in five campaigns, he'd made his way to the American presidency. Now, all that remained was to govern. In the event, that would soon prove to be harder than anticipated. On the morning of April 17th, just 90 days into the new administration, Barry Goldwater was in the Oval Office, summoned to see his old friend from the Senate. God, I hope they don't play this for a long, long time. <laughs> he came in and he had this little cigar in his mouth. You remember those little cigarette cigars? Mm. And he looked down and he said, do you want this job? <laughs> he said, I thought I had a pretty good thing going up till this morning. The attempt of Cuban exiles to reestablish a foothold in their homeland. A strategic defeat for Cuban democracy and American prestige. The Bay of Pigs, one historian said, was that rarest of events, a perfect failure. For a man unaccustomed to losing, the colossally botched attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro was a very rude awakening. Indeed, it's difficult to overstate the magnitude of the disaster. McGeorge Bundy, the president's national security advisor, played a big part in the debacle. He did go through a process yeah. of saying that there must never be another Cuba. I remember his remarking to me that in any other form of democratic government, he'd be out of office on the strength of the Bay of Pigs. And then he used to say, well, at least I've got three more years. Nobody can take that away from me. Kennedy took full responsibility for the fiasco. There's an old saying he observed that victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. However admirable the response, the Bay of Pigs raised a new and frightening possibility. Perhaps the country had, in fact, sent a boy to do a man's job. When we return... He had failed. Not only had he failed, but he was now aware of the nature of the enemy. From the public radio exchange, this is We Knew JFK, unheard stories from the Kennedy archives. For more of these stories, visit our website at weknewjfk.org. I'm Robert McNeil. From PRX, this is We Knew JFK, unheard stories from the Kennedy Archives. I'm Robert McNeil. At the American Embassy in Vienna, Austria, the world's two most powerful leaders met today. Coming just two months after the disastrous Bay of Pigs, the Vienna summit with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev did little to allay growing fears that the leader of the free world was in over his head. I felt that he had not acquitted himself well on this occasion that he had permitted Khrushchev to say many things which should have been challenged right there on the spot. George Kennan was the most eminent diplomat of his time and author of the Cold War policy of containment of Soviet power. He, feeling his way, preferred to let Khrushchev talk and uh, not to rebut any of this. I think this was a mistake. I think it definitely misled Khrushchev. I think Khrushchev thought that he had placed President Kennedy in a state of confusion where he had nothing to say in return. I think they thought that this is a uh, tongue-tied young man who's not forceful and who doesn't have um, ideas of his own, and they felt that they could get away with something. He didn't reckon on the bombastic Mr. Khrushchev. Walter Cronkite covered the Khrushchev-Kennedy meeting for CBS. Khrushchev shouted at him and all this. And when they came out of the meetings, there was no question that Kennedy was very, very down. He looked defeated. He smiled for the cameras, but it was a very forced smile. He had failed. And not only had he failed, but he was now aware of the nature of the enemy and the real nature of the Cold War. Until Vienna. He didn't really face up to the appalling moral burden that an American president now has to carry. Joseph Alsop saw the impact of the Vienna meeting on Kennedy when the president stopped in London on the way home for a family event, the christening of Jackie's niece. In the middle of it all, the president sort of shoved me into a corner and uh, talked for 15 minutes in this very tense new way about um, we've just been through. I had the sense that the thing had come to him as a, 
was a very great shock, which he was just beginning to adjust to. And after that was when I think he really began to be president in the full sense of the word. The expectations, I think, with which the president began was that other people were much like him. And the conclusion to which he was led of my experience was that people weren't much like him. McGeorge Bundy. This least doctrinaire of men had to deal with a man who was deeply doctrinaire in Khrushchev. They literally didn't make any sense to him. And he had to come to terms with the fact that writing them a polite letter or a rational exposition of the sensible way of dealing with the problem was really not, not operative. Still reeling from these two back-to-back -back humiliations, Kennedy somehow rallied. And from then on, many close observers felt he began to master the job. One critical quality was a nearly preternatural self-confidence. I think one clear element in it was simply the, the number of times that he had accomplished things that people said could not be accomplished. So that no was a word he was used to hearing and used to disproving. Joseph Alsop saw another quality that served the president well through this period. He was a severely pragmatic man. He didn't believe in any of the ideologies. He thought that was all a lot of twaddle, theoretical twaddle. All that interested him, will it work? If so, why? If it won't work, why not? This steady awareness of the irrelevance of the thing that you really couldn't do is what made him temperamentally so impatient with liberals that they were constantly getting up and saying that you ought to amend the Senate rules and get rid of the seniority rule and generally do a lot of things that you had about nine votes for. Uh, not interesting to John F. Kennedy and deeply irritating to him that so many people whose social purposes and sense of judgment he shared were so unaware of the, the limits of the problem. Politics, he used to say, is not the art of the possible, it's the enlargement of what is possible. Max Friedman. His criticism of uh, what he used to call rather contemptuously the professional or the ritualistic liberals is that they much preferred a grievance to a solution of the problem. They were only interested in the barricades provided they could cut an attractive figure while standing on them. He wanted to win the battle. This cool pragmatism, McGeorge Bundy recalled, was evident as well in how the president dealt with those around him in the White House. My father died in October, and uh, I went to tell the president I'd have to go to Boston, and he said, uh, you're going to have to go? Who's going to handle the wheat deal? Not that he didn't know mm -hmm. that it mattered, but there was one particular mess which he, you know, learned to blame me for, and who was he going to deal with while I was gone? I think uh, Jack Kennedy didn't really expect people to waste a lot of time on sympathy with him, and he had around him, and I think learned to rely on people that he didn't have to lavish butter on. As mm -hmm. a matter of fact, he had a butter-free diet with his staff. That's right. The eminent diplomat George Kennan noticed another striking trait in Kennedy. He's the best listener I have ever seen in high position anywhere. He was able to resist the temptation to which so many other great men have yielded to sound off himself and be admired. He asked questions modestly, sensibly, and listened very patiently to what you had to say. And this is a rare thing among men who have arisen to very exalted positions. As White House Chief of Protocol, Andrew Biddle Duke saw that same quality put to good use with the steady stream of foreign dignitaries who came to pay their respects to and take the measure of the new man in the White House. These encounters had traditionally been more ceremonial than substantive, but Kennedy took a different tack. He would invariably get into the substance and would improve upon the occasion by getting to matters of concern between the two countries or he might not know about the country much. Let's take Somalia. Well, he asked the ambassador to tell him everything he could tell him about Somalia. He said, we've got 15 minutes. Now, you tell me, uh, Mr. Ambassador, what do you want me to know about your country? He said, I'm frank to tell you, I don't know too much about it. I know where it is, your population, I know your uh, production. But you tell me everything that you think I should know. Well, of course, uh, the ambassador was delighted, pleased, and uh, got off quite a fascinating account. 
when he received foreign visitors. He had a sort of a, a boyish, instinctive courtesy, which seemed to me to be rather Lincoln-esque. George Kennan. There was something very appealing about it. There were no elaborate, fancy manners connected with it. It was uh, very quiet, but all the more impressive for this reason, and everyone understood it and got it right away. They realized that this uh, man had a certain old-fashioned gallantry about him, really, in everything that he did, and they responded to it. Leonard Bernstein remembered another occasion where the president's gallantry and charm were on display. This one, a White House gala for the Russian composer Igor Stravinsky. There was a line greeting Stravinsky, and uh, when he came to me in the Russian fashion, he kissed me on both cheeks, I kissed him on both cheeks, and there was all this Russian sort of kissing and embracing going on. And I suddenly heard a voice from the other corner of the room saying, hey, how about me? And it was the president. It's so endearing and so insanely unpresidential, and at the same time, never losing dignity. And it's a kind of dignity which doesn't usually merge with that much casualness and friendliness. However effective the Kennedy charm, it had its limits. In October 62, the president would face his greatest test, a crisis that threatened the entire planet and was not susceptible to solution by charisma. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation. Many people believe that this moment was the closest we have ever been to all-out nuclear war. My colleague Sander Van Oker, NBC chief White House correspondent, told me on those nights he and his wife stood looking at their sleeping children, wondering if they would all wake up in the morning. I was in Havana at the time, confined by Cuban authorities to a hotel room, wondering if I might be bombed by the American jets I could hear screaming overhead. In fact, Kennedy was under heavy military pressure to bomb the Soviet missile sites. But through it all, he kept a very cool head. Just how cool Andrew Biddle-Duke recounts in a story improbably involving the Prime Minister of Uganda. Well, that evening of October 22, at 6 o'clock, the president went on the air nationwide to give the public their first real intimation of, uh, of what was going on. This was a, a talk on the Cuban subject. Our appointment with the president was 4 o'clock that afternoon. I had been uh, in on the briefings that morning, and I was conscious of the urgency and the growing sense of crisis. When we got over there, I saw what looked like the entire National Security Council walking in the uh, Rose Guard, all on a tremendous air of urgency and excitement. I didn't bring Prime Minister Abote up to date on what was going on, but I was worried if the President would be able to see him. Perhaps 10 minutes past four, the President came in, we sat down in almost leisurely style, and I, again I saw the Security Council members going past the French windows of the Cabinet Room in the Rose Garden. The President settled into a discussion with Abote of Uganda-U.S. relations and African-American relations that took almost an hour. Never mentioned a word of what uh, his problems or preoccupations yes. might have been. Abote sat there expansively telling stories, completely oblivious of our national crisis namely that the Soviet missile bases in Cuba are being dismantled, their missiles and related equipment are being created. And the By the end of that week, the most frightening crisis in memory had been defused, thanks largely to the skill and nerve shown by the president. Eight months later, in a speech at American University, Kennedy felt confident enough to propose a major shift in Cold War thinking, to look beyond the existing stalemate of nuclear terror to a time of peaceful coexistence and a reduction of weapons of mass destruction. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures, and we are all mortal. Third, let us I felt that he grew greatly in his job. When Ambassador George Kennan returned to the U.S. after 15 months abroad, he found the president a different man. 
The man that I saw when I returned from Yugoslavia was a man who was already considerably greater in stature, more mature, more measured in his judgments, more seasoned than the man I had seen initially. At home, Kennedy had less success in meeting the mounting demands of the civil rights movement and in responding to the brutality encountered in cities like Birmingham, Alabama, which the growing power of television brought into American homes. In the summer of 63, he met with Martin Luther King and other leaders of the movement and learned of their plans for a march on Washington. John Lewis, the youngest of the group, remembered the president's first response, less than enthusiastic. You can tell by the body language of President Kennedy, he just sort of moved, twisted, and turned in his chair. He didn't necessarily like what he heard. And he said, if you bring a lot of people to Washington, won't there be a crisis, disorder, chaos? And we would never be able to get a civil rights bill through the Congress. Freedom and justice, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not... After the march, after all of the speeches, after all, everything, we were invited to come to the White House. He literally stood in a door of the old office and greeted each one of us. And he said, I saw you, I heard you, you did a good job. And he was so proud, he was so happy. It was almost like a father seeing his children do well. He was so pleased that things had gone so well. And Dr. King came through and he said something like, and you had a dream. It was just magic. That was my last time seeing President Kennedy alive. I didn't know who was listening at 4 o'clock in the morning across America. Radio reporter Sid Davis. But I traveled with Kennedy so many times in the campaign, and he would quote Robert Frost uh, stopping by Woods in the snowy evening a lot, where we would appear at one or two o'clock in the morning, and he would say, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. I don't know how many times I heard him say that in the campaign. So, as they took the casket into the White House, I started to say the uh, woods are lovely, dark and deep. And I started to cry. The uh, murder in Dallas was, well, for me, I think it was the worst experience of my life. Leonard Bernstein. We never really knew how different life was until it was over. Then it dawned on us like a, a very bleak dawn. And I must say, it's never been the same since. None of us here realized until his death how, how deeply people in this part of the world felt about him. Princess Grace of Monaco. There'd been so much anti-Americanism in recent years, and then his death broke through all this feeling, and everyone mourned him and, and was deeply shocked. Perhaps even more because they had failed to realize what he had come to mean to them or or recognize the waves of confidence and hope he was radiating. Well, he had too brief a period, really. Barry Goldwater. He gave the presidency a new look. He brought something to it that hadn't been there. I imagine had never been there before. Youth and vitality, there was always a sense of something going on, even if there was nothing going on. I can see him there yet with that fist up in the air getting a point across. I wished he'd lived the whole four years, because I, I always felt that he was just beginning to really understand the responsibilities of that office when he died. He loved the presidency. He loved it so much. Charles Bartlett. He loved the comforts of it. He loved the, the whole thing. He loved the people that were around him. He really loved it. I remember once he said, I'm going to use my allowance when I leave here to bring those telephone operators with me. He loved those telephone yeah, operators. Telephone operator. He said, of course, then he said, nobody would want to talk to me well, at least I'll have them. <laughs> Come on in, because I want to talk about old times. Tip O'Neill. Well, you know, we went in and we talked about fellows in his political life. Jimmy Kelly, Patsy Milton, Billy Sutton, 
Ah, oh, you want to know how their personal health was and were they getting by? And he asked me about each and every one of them. 17 years had gone by in many instances. It seemed to me as though he still had a, a feeling in his heart for those old friends that started with him. He'd walked out to the back door with me, and sitting up on the veranda was uh, his dad sitting in a wheelchair. He said to me, wave to my dad. So I waved up to Joe, and he said, when I go up there, you want to know who it was? I'll have to give him the whole conversation. He said, get a story that you can tell me, that I can tell my father. And I said, Jack, I can remember the campaign of 1958 when you were running for re-election. And I was campaign manager. with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. This has been We Knew JFK, unheard stories from the Kennedy Archives. For more on the storytellers and more of their stories, visit our website, weknewjfk.org. The program was written by myself and Steve Atlas, the executive producer. The producer was Kate Ellis, associate producer Mitch Hanley, managing producer Glenda Manzi. Archival recordings, courtesy of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum in Boston, and online at jfklibrary.org. Special thanks to Jennifer Marciello, Laurie Austin, Stephen Plotkin, Aaron Coe, and Laura Wiesen, and in memoriam to Mike Sullivan. Funding for the project and for the original recordings 50 years ago was provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and strengthening international peace and security at Carnegie.org. I'm Robert McNeil for PRX.